All right, folks. Well, I got to tell you, the Abraham saga is one of probably my favorite ones. Only because, well, I think it relates so much to us today. I mean, everything in Scripture does relate to one degree to another in our lives today. But, you know, when we're talking about Abraham, wow. I mean, what can we say regarding faith? It's amazing. And I think it's good encouragement for each and one of us as each and one of us goes through our own little trials, don't we? You know, we are in seasons in and seasons out. We come out of one season, and it appears like we're going in from one trial to another, and it almost appears like we don't get no rest. Well, you know, more often than not, if you are going through this, it's probably you doing something right. So keep encouraged, because <laughs> it's a good thing. You see, the, the trial is supposed to help us uh, endure and build us up. So the story of Abraham, folks, what can we say? You know, how does it relate to us for us today, in, in a sense? Well... Galatians chapter 3.29 gives us a reminder, first and foremost. And it says, and if you are of Messiah, then you are seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. So we want to kind of open up with that because I think it's important that we understand that. Why is the story of Abraham so important? Well, because it says that if you are of Messiah, well, how many of you are Messiah here? Amen, right? Well, it says that if that's the case, if you believe and you have accepted Messiah as, you know, as your salvation, right, Yeshua, then guess what? You are now part of this. You know, you are the seed of Abraham and heirs of the promise. Now, here's the thing, folks. If we are heirs according to the promise, well, we cannot just take the promise. We also have to look into the life of Abraham and his seed to see what kind of trials they have to go through as well. You know, because we can't say, well, God, I want to be part of the seed of Abraham, but I just want the benefits. You know, exclude the trials out completely. It doesn't work that way, does it, right? You know, we talk about, yeah, I want to be part of Abraham. Well, you've got to kind of got to go through what Abraham went through in the same way. So we need to kind of look at this as we go along to understand why we, why we want to understand the faith of Abraham. Amen? So we ended last week with what? Genesis 17, 26, right? It says, that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men in his house, those born in the house and those brought, bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So we want to kind of open up, pick it up with last week, because that was the last verse of Lech Lecha, and it ended with the circumcision, coming into this parasha by Iraq. Now, why is this so important? Because again, we are part of now this covenant. You know, we are the seed of Abraham now, and that's a beautiful thing. It's a blessing. And I want to touch up a little bit on the circumcision to understand it. Why is it important to understand it? Well, because unfortunately, it has been majorly misunderstood. You know, and there's all kinds of things out there. Some say we should circumcise. Some say, well, we don't have to circumcise anymore because of Jesus and all these different things. Well, let's look at this to understand it, how first of all was given, because that's important. How it was given will often more not will relate to you or share with you or reveal to you really what is the meaning of the circumcision, amen? So it ended with that last week. So now this week we jump into Genesis 18.1, and it says, And Hashem appeared to him by the ox of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So I ended with the circumcision, and now all of a sudden in 18.1, we find Abraham sitting at the front of his tent, and now it says that who appeared to him? 
Hashem appeared to him. So we're going to take a look at this and how it reads in the Hebrew. It says, Baira Elive Yehovah. So let's just pause there for a minute. It says, Baira Elive. So Baira is what is translated as what? As he appeared, right? Now, it's not a bad translation, actually pretty good. However, the word for appearing as an appearance is re'e, not yara. Yara in itself actually has a little bit of a different meaning. Although it can mean to appear, it's actually revealing something more than just an appearance. Because re'e is a visual appearance. Yara is not so much. So let's look at this, first and foremost. Yara, in the etymology of the Hebrew language, literally means to fear to give, to revere someone, to give honor, to be aware of the presence. And it can also mean, in, in Jewish language, you can also use it as an appearance. But what is this trying to teach us in here? And that in this appearance, right? In this appearance, there is reverence and there is honor, in other words. But to who is the question? Look at this. It says in here, Baira alive. Now, alive literally means to or towards someone, in a direction towards. So when it talks about Baira alive, it says, yes, and he appeared, but it's more than just he appeared. He appeared and he gave honor. In other words, to who? What it says in here, Baira elav Hashem, Hashem gave honor. To who? Be'elone Mamre, and that's talking about the plains of Mamre. To who? To Behu Yoshef, Betach, Ha'ohel, Kehom, Yanyom. So, in here, it's talking about, obviously, who's in the front of the tent? Abraham. But look at this, folks. It says in here, Behu Yoshef, Betach, Ha'ohel. What is the word for Betach? Well, petach literally means like an entrance of something, but when you look at that word, and again, this is what I love about Hebrew, is it's the meanings behind all these things. Petach also can mean an engraving of something. So, something that's been cut or engraved, in other words. So, how do we end it last week? Circumcision. <laughs> Are you getting this? So, whoever's at the entrance, the petach, ha'ohel, Obviously, has a little injury. Petach ahohel. So look, it says petach ahohel. Kehom, which is talking about the hirayom of the day. So look what the sages of Israel say. See, when I read this, it makes perfect sense to me that the way it says bayirai la is saying that Hashem gave honor and actually gave reverence, not necessarily worship, but that he gave honor to Abraham. That's what I was getting. But I was like, well, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense, though. Well, let's see what the sages, you know, Hassan has to say about this. But, and honestly, when you read it in Hebrew and you understand a lot of this, it's what it's saying. So let's see what Hazar says. It says in here in the Humash, as if to show what is about, or what is it was about Abraham that made him so uniquely worthy to be the spiritual father of all mankind, the Torah relates what he did on the third day after his circumcision. So according to Hazad, this was on the third day that Abraham is sitting in the front of the tent and he's, the third day is the worst day for circumcision. I wouldn't remember, but if the third day is like, it's the most painful, right? 
And according to this, Abraham was sitting at the entrance, Petach, which is engraved, cut, and also an entrance of his tent. So look what he says. Says, I uh, relates that on the third day after circumcision, when the wounds is most painful and the patient most weakened, God visited him to show him honor. Hazat says that he literally visited him to show him honor. Why? Well, look, it says in here, to show him honor for having carried out the commandment and to acknowledge that he had thereby elevated himself to a new spiritual point. Wow. It's amazing. Think about this, folks. How old was Abraham when he did this? Okay, how old was it when he left Haran? 75? Mm -hmm. Right? And how old is he now here for the for circumcision? How many years between 75 and 99? Who's good at math? Quick. Huh? 24 years later, from his call to Haran, 24 years later, the father tells him, well, I need you to circumcise. Think about this. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to revisit this later. Keep that in mind. 24 years later, he says, by the way, Abraham, why are you circumcised? <laughs> Couldn't say that when I was 75. You know, at least. You know, he's like at 99 now. You know, but more on that in just a minute. So look in here. Hazat says that he gave him he gave him honor for carrying out this. So look, Or Chaim explains that when people carry out great deeds, God shows himself to them as a token of a tribute. Wow. It's amazing. And, you know, this uh, appearance doesn't have to be like a little physical appearance, right? I mean, it can be something that the Father ministers to you, that speaks to your heart, you know, in different ways in how the Father reveals himself. But it's really amazing that what he's doing in here the father sees it as something dishonorable. Why? Well, we never read both in the Old Torah or in the written Torah, we never read about Abraham saying, why do I have to do this? It starts with that. And I think it's one of the things that we as a people today need to understand. When the father asks us to do something, we don't sit here and question him, why do we have to do it? At the age of 99, Abraham now is told to do this and we don't see him throwing a fit and questioning God's methods as to why. But rather we see that Abraham was very eager to do this immediately. So look, I wanna kind of real quickly touch up on this, understanding biblical circumcision versus traditional circumcision. There's a difference. And why is this important? Because I will submit to you that probably, eh, maybe about 40 to 45% of your arguments in the New Testament are probably, probably going to be related to circumcision. So if you're going to get into a circumcision argument in the New Testament, well, you kind of have to understand how it was given in the Old Testament. You have to understand it in order to properly present something that obviously it sounds scripture. So let's see it here. What was the purpose for biblical circumcision, number one? Number two, how does it compare to traditional circumcision? Because believe it or not, they're not one and the same. Although they sound the same, they're not one and the same. So, Genesis 17, 9, 11 says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout what? The generation, he says, right? It's kind of like the same thing he says with the Sabbath. 
You know, this is going to be like a sign for you that you're going to follow throughout all your generations. Now, I want you to keep that in mind, folks, because I have heard some arguments that really are, wow, you, 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 you hold into that position? You know, people saying, well, we don't circumcise anymore because of Jesus, but we keep the Sabbath. But my argument is, well, what is the difference? They were both given us a token of sign throughout your generation. So how do you argue that with somebody without sounding like a hypocrite, so to speak? Or you picking and choosing? But look what he says in here. This is whose covenant? He said, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between who? Me and you. Why would it be between him and you? Because it's personal. It's not for nobody else to see. It's for him to see. True? Right? It's a personal sign between you and him. This is important. Look what he says in here. So this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be what? Circumcised. Right? You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be what? A sign of the covenant between me and who? In you. Now, let's revisit the question that we just asked a few minutes ago. How long was it from the time that he left Haram to this time? 24 years later, he is asking him to do this. And now, the reason why he's given him to do this is because what? The sign of the covenant. Do you think this was probably hard for Abraham to do? Yeah. Folks, times haven't changed, you know. Abraham was just flesh and blood like we are. Do you think this was difficult for him to do? Give, you know, think about it. Back then, there was no anesthesia. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, woo. Really? No doctors to help. Exactly. So look, the sign of the covenant. Circumcision was for a sign between God and the worshiper. That's number one. The worshiper had to be declared righteous before the act. Why do I'm saying this? How many years now? 24 years. That God already had declared Abraham righteous. His, in his eyes, Abraham was clean. Abraham was his. The promise was already given. You're getting this. And it's not like he told Abraham, well, a week later, do this. 75 years ago. Over 24 years ago. He waited 24 years later. I think the father did that intentionally to what? To teach us something about this. See, we focus too much on the sign and we, we, we're forgetting really the meaning behind it. Look, the act was a sign of faith on behalf of the worshiper. Did it take faith for Abraham to do that? Absolutely, because, you know, it's not like Abraham did it to attain favor before God. God already said he was his. Think about it. And look at all the trials that God has brought him up to this point. 24 years later, Abraham has gone through some serious trials. And God has delivered them from each and one of them. These are things that we need to meditate as we go into the story. Look. This was not just limited to the natural born of his house, however, but also to those who were purchased. If you notice, Ishmael was, was circumcised, and who else? And all scripture says they were purchased with silver. Prophetic of the grafting in, of the Gentiles coming into the covenant. Okay? Now, 
These men, in the same way, folks, they were already following Abraham. <laughs> They're already loyal to Abraham. They were already loyal to the covenant. They didn't use the circumcision as a means to be right with God. Rather, they were already right with God. You know, what is it that we always say about the Sabbath? Well, we don't keep Sabbath in order to attain favor. We keep Sabbath because we his, right? Okay, same thing with circumcision. Why do you circumcise? Well, definitely not to obtain righteousness, but rather because we're his. Understanding this. So, Genesis 17, 13 says, But both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. You know what the Father is giving in here is something very personal, essentially. Something that's just between you and him, essentially. So, did this covenant change later in history is the question. Because when now we, with this a little bit of this foundation, this is the first time you're going to find it. With this in mind in here, and we understand that he was already, he was already God's. So it's not like, you know, Abraham is doing this in order to actually come into a covenant. He was already in covenant with God. Did that change later in history? Look, Joshua 5, 2 and 8 says, At the time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the son of Israel at Gibeliath HaRolot. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way of the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So you have that first generation that was circumcised, but the second generation who was actually born in the wilderness were never circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, and to all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land of, that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. So the whole nation in here now is circumcised in the time of Joshua, and who gave the order? Hashem. Hashem. Hashem gave the order. It's not like Joshua said, you know what, we need to do this, by the way. <laughs> And, and by the way, all these men that he is circumcising, they're not eight days old. They're grown men. I'm just saying. Kind of like Abraham was a grown man. And Ishmael was already 13, 14 years old. And all the house later, they were all grown men. So, Ezekiel 44, 9. How about in the time of Ezekiel? Thus says Hashem God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart, and what? Both. Notice that he distinguishes. Because, you know, you got the argument. Well, the circumcision today just means that of the heart. Well, it meant the heart back then as well. <laughs> but notice how Ezekiel talks about. He separates the circumcision of the heart and the circumcision of the actual flesh. Why does he make mention both? Look what it says. No foreigner, I'm circumcising heart and flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. So what is the point in here? He's revealing something very, very amazing that corresponds to what we learned about Abraham. See, Abraham was already circumcised in the flesh, I mean, of his heart. 
before he became circumcised in the flesh. That's why it says in here, uncircumcised in heart and flesh. Notice why he says both. For us not to think that just because we do an act in the outside, that's going to cover us. He's making sure that he covers all the bases in here. He's saying if you circumcise in your, in your heart, then what comes out should be something that matches what's in your heart. Because, you know, easily we can say, well, I'll go ahead and circumcise, but you're rotten inside. Fathers doesn't care about that. And vice versa is the same. And we're going to touch more on that in just a little bit. Luke 2.21, about the time of Yeshua. And when the eight days were completed for him to be circumcised, his name was called Yeshua. The name given by the messenger before he was conceived in the womb. So we see that even our Mashiach was what? Circumcised on the eighth day. Did it matter back then? Well, it had to matter because if it didn't matter, why did he become circumcised? Okay. Look, traditional circumcision. Now let's talk a little bit about this. The purpose of circumcision was later changed by men. <coughs> Just like anything else, it always gets corrupted. Tradition made it into a ritual that would elevate you into righteousness. It was also used as an identity for the nation of people. Rashaul, Paul, believe it or not, was never against biblical circumcision. What he was against was traditional circumcision. He was rebuking the fact that circumcision was being abused and used as a means of attaining righteousness. There's the difference. Because what his argument was, Abraham basically was 24 years walking with God before he became circumcised. In the flesh, that is. So, what he was teaching, and the famous teaching of the first century, we're going to find out in here. Well, before we get started, look what it says in here, Romans 2.25. For circumcision, indeed, is value if you what? Obey the law. It makes perfect sense. Because, you see, the idea is that if you circumcise, your heart needs to be circumcised. That's what he's saying. That's his argument. If you circumcise in the outside, then you better be obeying the Torah. Then You better be obedient to God. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes what? Uncircumcision. Uncircumcision. Remember what we just read about Ezekiel? Mm -hmm. He said those who were not in church century are the ones who are what? Who are not circumcised both. Or who are circumcised both in the flesh of the heart and the outward. So what we're looking at here is... He's saying that even if you are physically circumcised, if you're not obedient to Hashem, if you're not looking after the widows, if you're not tending to the people, if you're not following His covenant, then your physical circumcision means nothing. Mm -hmm. Make sense? Because that's how it was given to Abraham. So look. So if a man who is uncircumcised, this is a good example, keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now, he's not saying that you don't have to circumcise. He's talking about how you are presented before the Father. Because before the Father, you are as uncircumcised. Abraham walked with God for 24 years before God asked him to circumcise. We need to understand this, folks, to be able to discern the difference between tradition and what the Bible says about it. And that we're not going around telling people you don't have to circumcise anymore. You need to be very careful what comes out of our mouth. Look. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. 
In other words, those he's, he's addressing in here to the Pharisees, who were physically circumcised, but inside they were what? Uncircumcised. But they were condemning those who were uncircumcised. Look, Romans 2.28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Again, this, this is all lingo. It's talking about physical circumcision. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one, what? Inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but God. That's the key word. His praise is not from men, right? His praise is not from men, but from God, in other words. Because of the famous teaching that was taking place, which I'll share with you in a minute, in the first century, the, the act of circumcision became a yoke, if you want to call it, for the people coming to, coming to God. The famous teaching was that you have to circumcise first in order for God to what? Receive you. This is something that we need to understand. So look, Abraham's deed... We're going to see now here the prophecy of the days of Messiah. That's very, very important with what he did. Genesis 18, 2 and 5 says, So he lifted his eyes and looked and saw three men standing opposite of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found now favor in your eyes, please do not pass your servant by. This is very interesting because we just read that Abraham just circumcised three days ago. And now he is sitting at the entrance of the tent in the most painful day. And now these strangers pass by. And what does he do? He runs. He's not just sitting there saying, hey, you get over here, man. He runs. So look, what does he say? Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And let me bring a piece of bread and refresh your hearts. And then go on. For this is why you have come to your sermon. And they said, do as you said. Very interesting because the, the sages of Israel actually saw a messianic prophecy in this act here. That believe it or not, only Yeshua fulfilled. Because Abraham now is just circumcised, which means he is hurt. He's injured. He's sitting in the, in the heat of the day in the front of the tent, still being a servant. And what is he offering the, 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 the guests? Water and bread. Look at this. Numbers Rabbah 14.1 says this. Everything that Abraham did for the ministering angels, the Lord will do the same for his children in the future. So according to the sages, when they wrote this, they saw that the deeds that Abraham did here with the strangers is something that the Lord Hashem himself, according to the sages, will do for his children in the latter future. So what did Yeshua say to make the connection with what the sages talked about, the Lord doing in the latter days? Yeshua said this, Luke twenty-two twenty-seven: For who is greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at the table? But I am in your midst as the one who what? Who serves. The servitude of Abraham, the sages saw that as prophetic of the Mashiach ben Yosef, who will be the one to come to serve. So look, like Abraham, Yeshua washed the disciples' feet. What did Abraham do? He washed their feet. Like Abraham, uh, Yeshua gave them of the water, gave them water. And Yeshua, what did he do? He gave them of the water of life. 
And Yeshua also gave them the bread to sustain them, just like Abraham gave the strangers bread to sustain them. So we see three connections in here, and the sages saw it as well, that Abraham is washing their feet, giving them water, and giving them bread. And acting as a servant in the time when he was in most pain. Think about it. This is the connection that we see here, what it's like to be a servant, folks, in the connection. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. This is amazing. I love this because, you know, Abraham is just being a servant here in this case. And little did he know that in his servitude, Hashem appeared to him. This actually comes in agreement with the, the beginning of this Torah portion. That Hashem actually makes an appearance for those who do great deeds. Because Abraham wasn't looking for praise. He was just being a servant. Little did he knew that in that day he was actually serving the king. And the same can be said for us today, folks. You never know. You never know who is it. So now we're going to go move on to the promise of a son. So Genesis 18, 10 through 11 says, And he said, after, they, after Abraham does this for him, now that uh, the messengers reveal what they're going to do here. So he said, I shall certainly return to you according to the time of life, he says. And see, Sarah, your wife, is to have a son. Now, how old is Sarah at this point in here? Yeah. And how long has she been waiting to have children? All her life. <laughs> She's barren. Now, this is very prophetic, believe it or not. Because if you notice that the matriarchs of the, of the Holy Scriptures, all of them were barren, just about. It's revealing something very, very prophetic and deep in that barrenness. Look. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah was past the way of woman. So the scripture is revealing in here that at this point, in the physical realm, this was impossible. Mm -hmm. yeah. Could this be true? Yeah. Because what woman you know at the age of 90 is having children <laughs> today? It's not common, right? It's actually almost really impossible. So look, he says, he says this to them and She's sitting behind, of course, in the tent, right? But what's amazing is what he says. It says in here in Hebrew, Vayomer Shov Ashuv. Okay? Notice that in both is the same root word. Shuv, shuv. But he says, Shov Ashuv. says, Vayomer Shov Ashuv Elecha Ka'et. Haya. Oh, Chaya, yes. So look, it's talking about Bayomed HaShuv Ashov. It's translated in English as, as I will certainly come to you or return to you. What is Shuv? To return, to come back, right? So the promise now that he's giving in here is that he is going to return to her when? Or to her at Ka'et Chaya. Ka'et is literally the season or a season. So Ka'et Chaya is talking about, I'm going to return to you in the season of life, he says. This is very interesting, what he's saying. So it says, And behold, you will have a son. Le Sarah, 
Ishtecha, which is uh, his wife, Vesara, Shamat, she was listening, in the entrance of the tent, in the other side. So as the messenger is saying this to Abraham, she's listening in the other side about this promise that is given him. Now, according to Hazal, her thoughts were that the guests were just being courteous, but not necessarily prophesizing something that was going to happen. And how often does that happen to our lives, folks? Mm -hmm. People will speak life into us, and we're like, shut whatever. Mm -hmm. Now you're being modest, right? Mm -hmm. But can you blame her for laughing? Mm -hmm. How long has she been waiting? Think about it. A very long time, folks. Sure. So look, moving on here. Genesis 21.1. And Hashem visited Sarah as he has said, and Hashem did for Sarah as he had spoken. Now, this is really, really interesting because he says that I'm going to show Ashuv to you at the season of life. So he says that I'm going to return to you at the season of life. So you expect, right? You expect to read Hashem coming back and speaking to her. Because he says, I'm going to shoot, I'll show. Literally, it's talking about, it's personal. It's actually so personal, too personal, in other words. And we're going to see what the connection is in the in Mashiach coming. Look, in Hebrew says, Notice that we have the altar connected to Sarah. Now it says, Now what is the Hebrew word for remember? Anybody know in the comment? The typical Hebrew word for remember is zakar. Right? You remember. Okay? But the choice word in here is pakat. Now, it could mean also to remember. But that's not generally the way of that word. Look, pakat literally means to attend to, to visit, was appointed. That changes because in this appearance, okay, that he's going to do, or in this remembrance that he's going to do, it's going to be accompanied by literally a visit. So listen, if we read this, folks, listen, this is all amazing. If you really read this prophetically in the Hebrew, it shows something amazing. Look, Ve Yehovah, right? Hashem. So we can read this based on pakat and the understanding of the weight of this word. We can read it. And Yehovah appointed or visited the Aleph Tav to Sarah. <laughs> In other words, and Yehovah appointed the Aleph Tav to Sarah. Because remember, he says that I will shuv a shuv, or shuv a shuv to you. It's almost like repeating himself. It's personal. This visitation is not just him appearing in front of her and talking to her, but it's going to be personal. Look. So it says, Ka'asher amad ve'yas, and that is in which he said that he would do. Asa means to do. The word that he spoke. So now we see in here that he's going to fulfill what he spoke. 
But Sarah is probably wondering, okay, what does this mean? Am, am I going to get another visit from three strangers? <laughs> but he assures her that she will have a son. But in here, again, we see something more prophetic. He is going to appoint the Aleph Taf to Sarah. Now, Sarah was what? Barren, right? What was the result of the visit? Go back, slide. Right? So he's going to appoint the Aleph Tat to Sarah, the visitation to Sarah. What was the result? Next one. Genesis 21 2 gives us the answer. So Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. See, the way that's written in the Hebrew is written in a, in a prophetic form. Even though the understanding of that is that she would have a child. And Hashem will open her womb to have a, sha, a child, but it is also revealing something prophetic about the Mashiach. That the birth of the Mashiach will be one that will be miraculous. It will be a miracle. It will be impossible. Look. So it says, So Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son at his old age. At the appointed time, which time was that? Ka'at what? Chaya. That is the time of life. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. So look at this. It says, Betahad, Betelet, Sarah. That word for Betahad is from the Hebrew word Harad. Harad means to conceive. Okay? But look how it's written. It is written with a top. Betahad, Betelet. Meaning the covenant. Betahad betalet Sarah ve Abraham ben Zichunai. It's talking about of his old age. Who else does that sound familiar? Jack The child that had, uh, the man had a child at his old age and he loved him so much. Joseph? Jack Rice? Getting all kinds of answers. Yeah. <laughs> John the Baptist? Samson? No. More closer to our generation. Joseph. Joseph was a child of whose age? Jacob's old age. Who is prophetic of Mashiach ben Yosef also? Joseph, which we're going to get into that later. So it says, La Moed, in the appointed time, that is the feast. Asher David Oto Elohim, just as Elohim promised this. But look, it's saying in here, I promise him. Divet Oto Elohim. The him is the Aleph Tav. Again, pointing to the Mashiach as the one. It's amazing. Thanks. Look what the Humash says. The prophecies to Abraham and Sarah and the joint longings to build the future for which God had created the world finally found fulfillment with the birth of Sarah's son. I think that's an understatement. When you look at this from the prophetic view that Isaac is a prophecy prophecy of the Mashiach, you better believe it because it says that everything that was created was created for him. <laughs> and they're acknowledging to the same thing. But look, moreover, the manner in which it happened that a woman who was infertile, even in her youth, had a child at the age of 90, established the what? The miraculous nature of God's chosen people. God could just as easily have given a child to Sarah in her prime they say, but that would have not demonstrated divine intervention. Think about it. And in the same way, this is important because the Mashiach will be one of divine intervention the same way. We're going to see the connection in here. 
Look, Luke 130, look what it says. And the messenger said to her, do not be afraid. Interesting that a messenger came to her as well. Just like with Sarai, the messengers came to her to announce what? The good news about a child. <laughs> we see it a lot. This should be ringing a lot of bells in the New Testament. So it says in here, do not be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with Elohim. And see, you shall conceive in your womb and shall give birth to a son and call his name Yeshua. It almost sounds poetic. It almost sounds exactly something that we just read. And it is. It's the story of Sarah. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And Hashem Elohim shall give him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there shall be no end to his kingdom. And Miriam said to the messenger, How shall this be since I do not know a man? Now, here is the connection between the barren and Miriam. What is the connection? Well, just like a virgin, a barren woman cannot have children. Any more than a virgin. Makes sense. See, the virgin birth is a miracle just like the barren of a woman is a miracle for her to conceive a child. Look. And the messenger said, answering said to her, set apart spirit shall come upon you. And the notice that it says the set apart spirit shall come upon you. And isn't this what we just read in Pakat, Sarai, et Sarai? That he will what? Appoint the Aleta to Sarai. And it's the Holy Spirit coming upon her in the same way. It's amazing. So it says the set apart spirit shall come upon you and the power of the Most High shall overshadow you. And for that reason, the set apart one born of you shall be called the son of Elohim. So Isaac was a picture of Messiah Yeshua pointing to Hazal. Here we have a clear picture of the virgin birth of Mary and Sarah barrenness. In both cases, birth will be impossible. So now we'll wait on here. Genesis 21, 9 and 10. And Sarah, the son of Hagar, the, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, <coughs> born to Abraham, mocking. So she saw a mocking. So what happens in here? Got ahead a little bit ahead of myself in here. But now, what we see is that this promise has been given, right? And prior to that, unfortunately, Abraham and Sarai lost a little bit of faith and decided to do it on their own, right? You know, they decided, well, you know, it's been over 10 years. Maybe, you know, maybe Hashem meant this. And I, I just think it's interesting because we do the same thing today. We rationalize. Maybe really God meant this, you know, because it's not in our timing. And in doing this, what she did is create a big problem. Because now she had Abraham literally married. Scripture says that he married Hagar, actually. Gave him into marriage for Hagar. And she conceived and had a child, which later we, can, we know as Ishmael. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But now there's a problem because now the promise of God has become fulfilled. And now we have a big problem. We have Ishmael and now we have Isaac. Okay. It's like, okay, what do we do now? So look what he says in here. So she saw him mocking. So she said to Abraham, drive out this female servant and her son. For the son of this female servant shall I inherit with my son, Isaac. This is very important for us to understand because, again, folks, this goes back to the New Testament. The Midrash in the New Testament that they use is connecting to this scripture right here. So look, verse 10 says... Vatomer, right? Let Abraham 
Garesh Ha'ama Hazot. Stop there. It says, Ve'tomen, and that is, and he said to Abraham, Garesh. What is Garesh? Let's look at this word. It means literally to drive out from a procession. Garesh also has the understanding of, or carries the weight of a divorce also. Well, it kind of makes sense because in the prior scripture it says that he married her. Okay? Go back to the slide for a minute. So it says in here, let Abraham Garesh, so she's saying, I need you to separate this, to divorce, to drive out the possession, essentially. Because the possession only comes when you're married. If you're divorced, there's no possession. There's no inheritance. So it says, Garesh Ha'ama Bezot Ve'et Benah. And talking about in here that she's saying that he will not have the inheritance for her son. Her son in Hebrew says the Aleph Tav Benah or Benah. So we see that there's a messianic prophecy in here, which later in the Brit Hadashah we see that it's true. There's a midrash in here. The the, the Aleph Tav connecting with the who? With Isaac. And how that seed of the Alatah will not share an inheritance with that of Ishmael. Okay? So look, to drive out, garage, to experiment, to divorce, to drive out from a possession also, to drive away. Look, Abraham married the concubine Hagar in order to make the promises of God come to effect. We found that in Genesis 16.3. Okay? This is alluded in the New Testament as salvation based on men's doctrine. That's the midrash that they use as a point of reference. Now, when you sit down and meditate, it makes perfect sense. Because the Aleph which is Yisak, right? That's where the promise comes from, right? And, but Abraham used another way to do this. He did it by his own initial works. To try to make a promise come true. Look. This is a little in the New Testament. Salvation based on men's doctrine. Which is also the title for works of the law. Paul uses this scripture as an example of how to. How can people come to God. In other words. Remember the famous teaching of the first century Judaism. Was that you needed to be Jewish. In order for God to save you from your sins. It was all based on genealogy status. Not on truth. And he uses Hagar and Ishmael with Sarah and Isaac as a point of reference to present his argument. Look, Galatians 4.21 says, Say to me, you who wish to be under Torah. In other words, oral law. Do you not hear Shema and obey the Torah, the written law? Why did I put there in parentheses the written law? Because he says, do you not hear the rain law? And the scripture that he's going to present is the one that we're reading right now. So obviously it is from the written word. This is what we're reading. Look what he's saying here. For it has been written that Abraham had two sons. One by a female servant and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the female servant was born according to the flesh. Why? Because it's what Abraham did. It was his initiative. Right. See, Abraham took it upon himself to guarantee that seed. When God already told him it's going to come through Sarah. So look. 
But the one who was of the female soul was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. Now this is what? Allegorical. For these are the two covenants, he says. You've got to listen to what he's saying in here. These are the two covenants. One indeed from Mount Sinai, right? Which brings forth slavery, which is Hagar. So now he's comparing Mount Sinai with who? Hagar, which is the female servant, right? Now, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now is in slavery. So he's corresponding Mount Sinai with Hagar in Jerusalem at that time. Not Jerusalem today, although much has not, not, not changed. But he's talking, comparing the Jerusalem, the state of Jerusalem at that time that he's writing this letter. Who was running Jerusalem at that time, the Sahedra? Well, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. As a matter of fact, when Yeshua was there, it was the Sadducees. So look. But the Jerusalem above is what? Free, which is the mother of us all. Go next one. For it has been written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who do not have birth pains. For the deserted one has many more children than she who has a husband. And we brothers, as Isaac, now he's comparing Isaac, was our children of the promise. But as he was, I'm sorry, but as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him, born according to the Spirit. So also now. We look in the history later, we understand that later that seed of Hagar is the one that's persecuting the seed of Isaac. Hello, just look at history. <laughs> you know, even, even all the way up to today. But what does the scripture say? Now this is what it brings back to the portion that we're reading. And now it's bringing it back to this portion. Cast out the female servant and her son. Did we just read that now? That's exactly what we're reading now. For the son of the female servant shall by no means be heir with the son of the free woman. See, folks, this is why this whole unity thing of being unequally yoked doesn't work. Because he says it, cast out, because they're not going to inherit it together. There's no connection there. Look, therefore, brothers, we are not children of the female servant, but of the free woman. So bondage or freedom is the question. Look, there was only one covenant given in Mount Sinai according to the written word. Verse 24, however, mentions two covenants in Mount Sinai. But if we read in the word, there was only one covenant given. That's when Hashem descended on the mountain and he gave his word. That was the covenant. One covenant that he gave for, for who? For his people. <coughs> the covenant God gave to his people was for the people who were already what? Free. Remember? They were free from Egypt already. So they were already free. Now this corresponds to Isaac. Remember that. Keep that in mind. They were already free and they were given the word. So where is the second covenant that produces bondage is the question. Because the argument in the Midrash that Rabbi Shaul is bringing up He's saying that there were two. One that brings freedom and the other one that brings bondage in Mount Sinai. But he also says that, that Mount Sinai is Hagar, which corresponds to who? Jerusalem at that time. Look. A careful reading of the scripture and Yeshua's teaching will give us the answer. Look. 
Simple facts, folks. According to Jewish law, the Torah was accompanied by an authoritative tradition. Now, the key word there is authoritative. Okay? That explains the meaning of obscure passages and provides the rules and methods of accurately interpreting the text. That's by Rabbi Nasson Shema. The Red Torah and the Old Torah and Rabbinical Judaism, folks, are not really separated. But they are known as one. However, the sages do agree that two of them were given in Mount Sinai. But they treat them as one, but they still see it as two. In other words, in Mount Sinai, the written word was given, and the oral law was given. So that's two covenants, essentially. According to Jewish law, one without the other, however, is what? Incomplete. You cannot say, I'm going to study the written law, but not the oral law. By Jewish law, that's just heresy. Because they see it as together. Look what Sahedrin 88b says. There is a great culpability in respect to the teachings of the scribes that in respect to the Torah. Adding to the words of the scribes, he is culpable. A person must not say, I will keep the commandments of the elders, the rabbis, because they are not from the Torah. I will not, I'm sorry. I will not keep the commandments of the elders, the rabbis, because they are not from the Torah. The Almighty says to such a person, No, my son, rather all that they decree upon you observe, as it is written, according to the instructions which they teach you. So this is in Sahedrin 88b, opens up by saying that a person cannot, according to Jewish law, study the Torah without having the oral Torah with you. In other words, in Erwin 21b, we see this. The congregation of Israel said to the Holy One, Blessed be he, the Lord of the universe, I have imposed upon myself more restrictions than thou hast imposed upon me. And I have observed them. As to the laws of the scribes, whoever transgresses any of the enactments of the scribes incurs the penalty of death. Next. Josephus in Antiquities writes this. The Pharisees are able greatly to persuade the congregation of the people whatsoever they do about divine worship, prayers, and sacrifices. They perform them according to what? Their direction. Even Josephus, who's a Jew, by the way, is coming in agreement with this. Inasmuch that the cities have great attestations to them on account of their entire virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and the disclosures also. So let's compare it here, folks. I want to do a quick comparison. We're going to move on so we can understand what Galatians is talking about specifically. In the left, we got Ramban's introduction to the Mishnah, okay? And in the right, we got Luke 24, 27. I want you guys to compare and contrast that. Let's start with Ramban's introduction to the Mishnah. It says, if there are a thousand prophets, all of them with the statue of Elijah, and Elisha given a certain interpretation, and a thousand one rabbis given the opposite interpretation, you shall incline after the majority, and the law is according to the thousand one rabbis. Now, may I remind you, this is the opening of Ramban's Mishnah. This is the opening. It's saying, in other words, that even if Elijah comes down with an interpretation that is sound, doesn't matter. If the, if the rabbis outvoted that, then the decree is you go with the interpretation of the rabbis. This is why in Israel it's so hard to minister. 
I've seen Messianic Jewish people going out there, and I, I hear the Midrash and what they're talking about, and how they're trying to convert a lot of these Hasidic Jews to get to receive Yeshua, through the Torah, by the way, because they're Jews. And they're sitting there, and they're showing them through the Torah, through the prophets, and it doesn't matter, because the rabbis, again, it goes back to this. Even if one comes in the statue of Elijah, it doesn't matter. You have to go with the interpretation of the rabbi. Now, by the way, folks, by the way, Christianity is no different. It's no different. Don't think that this is just Jewish law. This is religion, period. Because you can have somebody come with a statue of Elijah to Christianity, and if it's not what the interpret the common interpretations today of Christianity, don't deny it. It's no, no different. It's the same spirit. One is Semitic and the other one is not. It's the only difference. Look, it says in here, not according to the venerable prophets. God did not permit us, now listen to this. God did not permit us to learn from the prophets. Oh, wow. But, look what it says, only from the rabbis who are men of logic and reason. Now, I will give respect to the rabbis. There are very, very good rabbis out there. But let me tell you, if you've been long enough in this and you read some of the interpretations of Rashi, it'll make your mouth drop. I don't know if there's any logic in that one. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I'm just saying. So the reality is, folks, look, but notice how they separate the rabbis from who? The rabbis. I mean, the rabbis from the prophets. What did the prophets do? When we go back to the Tanakh, what did the prophets do when they came to the people? They taught them to repent. They had to teach. According to Ramban, they shouldn't even receive the words of that prophet. That's the problem. This is what we have. Now, let's compare that with Luke 24, 27. Because in here, look what it says. In here it says, God did not permit us to learn from the prophets. That goes direct violation against the Tanakh. Look what Yeshua said in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he was explaining to them in all the scriptures the matters concerning himself. So Yeshua is advocating to the people saying, go to Moses, go to the prophets, because they edify me. Religion is saying, don't go to the prophets, go to the rabbis. Complete opposite. From the words of Yeshua and the words of tradition. And the same stands for circumcision. A major difference between traditional circumcision and biblical circumcision. So now we're going to uh, close it up here soon with the binding of Isaac and the Mashiach. This is very, very important as we continue to this. So Genesis 22, 1 and 6 says, And it came to be after these events that Elohim tried Abraham, it says. Okay? According to the sages, this is the tenth tribe that he gave Abraham. The tenth test was uh, the, the binding of Isaac. And said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. And he said, take your son now, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I command you. This is one of the most powerful uh, scriptures, I believe, that testifies of the Mashiach. Now, we have noticed so far that a lot of this testifies to Yeshua, because even with uh, Sarai being barren, and him, excuse me, returning to her, 
which is appointed, is talking about the miraculous birth as well, the miracle birth. So we see a lot of these shadows of the Mashiach in this parsha. But now we're going to see something that's very powerful, and that is the binding of Isaac as well. But look at this, folks. In verse 1, go back one, go back. It says, and it came to be after this event that Elohim tried Abraham. It tests Abraham. Let's see how that read that in Hebrew. It says, Vayehi achar ha-devarim ha-elek ve-ha-elohim. Nisa'et Abraham. Now, notice that there's an Aleph top. Notice that there's an Aleph top there, right? And I put this all in yellow for a reason, so you can see it. So it came to be after these days that the word of Hashem, Hale uh, or Elohim, came to test Abraham. But look, in this whole word of testing Abraham, it says in here, Nisa'et Abraham. So the Torah is trying to convey a messianic prophecy in here. Now, this word for Nisa is what is translated as testing Abraham. Now, it is true that he was tested, but there's more to the word. Look, Nisa literally means to test, right? But look, the root of this word is Nes. And Nes literally means like a banner, a signal. It also means to elevate. In this testing, Abraham was elevated as a banner. This is amazing, folks. Look, the Midrash says this. The Midrash renders Nisa in the, in the off-elevated, like Nest, a banner, that flies high above an army or ship. Hence, the verse will be rendered, and God exalted Abraham. Trial upon trial, greatness after greatness. Because through the trials, he's being what? Elevated. Through each trial, he's being elevated. This would have been the last one that he had to conquer. They would, he would achieve greatness according to the Midrash. So Genesis 22, 1 and 6. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, right? Uh, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, he says. <coughs> Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey, and the boy, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It's, you notice that in verse 5, is something interesting that the writer of Hebrews testifies. In verse 5, he says that him and the boy are coming back. But Abraham, uh, Hashem had just told him, go to offer Isaac. So you would think that he would say, well, I will return back. But he said, I am the boy will return back. Look, <clears throat> I think it's very amazing. And Abraham, look what it says here. <clears throat> and Abraham took the wood, it says, of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. This is really, really amazing. I want to focus on verse 6 in the Hebrew so you can understand what's taking place in here. How prophetic this is of the Mashiach. So it says, Bayikach Avram et atzeh. Notice the Alatah connected now with the wood. So the, uh, the sages are conveying the Messianic prophecy connected with this wood that Abraham is laying upon Isaac. <laughs> Look, it says in here, Bayikach Avram, that he took uh, Abraham, right, the wood up, 
Ha'olah. So this word is not just a word, but it's a word for the Olah. What is Olah? It's the Olah offering, the burnt offering, right? So it says, say Ha'olah Besham there al Yitzhak. So he placed this wood, which is connecting to the Aleph Tav, upon Isaac, okay, Yitzhak. His son, Beno, and he took his hand. This is very interesting. The other time is also connected with the fire. Look, it says in here, He says literally that he took the fire in his hand. How do you grab fire? Think about this. But it doesn't stop there. It says, this is translated as the knife. The fire, he took the fire and the knife, but notice it says, Ve'et ha-ma'akalet. This is from the Hebrew word achal, and it's actually more translated as food, okay? Not necessarily a knife. But what's interesting about that word also is that that word achal, which denotes uh, food, also has to do with consuming something and being pleased with it, so to speak. That's why I'm saying it's written in a very poetic form. Look, this knife is called the Mahalop. I wrote it in here, okay? Because according to Bereshit Rabbah 56, which I didn't put it in there, but I was reading on it this morning, it was very interesting. This word, the sages saw something interesting about it. It says this knife is called the Mahalet, right? Because Israel uh, eats of its rewards. That's an understatement. You get it? Look what it says. This is powerful. It says that this right here, by the way, it says that this knife is special specifically because it connects with food because Israel eats of its rewards forever. Yeshua said, what? If you do not eat me and drink my blood, you will not have life in yourself. This is all connecting. That's why it connects with the olive top in there. It's really, really amazing. So, let's move on in here. So, Abraham laid the wood on the burnt offering on Isaac, his son, folks. Isaac carried the wood of the offering to the mountain. Like Isaac, Yeshua carried the cross beam on his back to Golgotha. This is amazing. This is why we see in the Hebrew scriptures the Messianic prophecy in there about the Aletaf on the wood. Because it will be the Mashiach to carry this wood for the offering that Israel will eat. And it will be satisfied for all eternity. Look, let's move on in here. Genesis 22, 7 and 8. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he says, See the fire and the wood? But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, Elohim does provide for himself the lamb for a future burnt offering. I'm sorry, for a burnt offering. And the two of them went together. Now, it's interesting why it says that. The two of them went together. How old was Isaac in here? It's 30s, folks. According to Hazat, 37 to be exact. He was not a three-year-old, a five-year-old, like a lot of the movies depict. But he was a 37-year-old. They walked together. 
meaning that they were in harmony with what was going to take place. Look, you can even say that Isaac submitted to the will of the Father. Kind of like Yeshua submitted to the will of the Father when he carried the cross up to God with God. And they came to the place which Elohim had commanded him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. Now this is very interesting in this wood in order. Now I took some notes in here. There's a lot of notes in here. But it's very, very something interesting about this wood in order. Upon the wood. Now, slide me to the next one. I want to read this in Hebrew. It says, by, by the Yavo, which he went, El Hamakon. Now, it's interesting that he says the place. Now, the word, choice word in there for Hebrew is Hamakon. Later, we're going to read in the Torah portions about Jacob coming to the place where he laid the rock and the ladder ascended to heaven. Guess what that would have been, folks? Where the temple is. Mount Moriah, where the temple is. So, El Hamakoma Shera Marilo Ha Elohim Beyi Ben Sham, his son there, Abraham Ed Hamizbecha. Look at this, folks. The Aleph Tav in here. He said that he went with his son, right? Now, notice that Beya Ben is actually, he built there. Look, this is very interesting. Beyi Ben Sham, Abraham Ed Hamizbecha. It says in here that he built there, Abraham, the altar. The altar is, Mizbecha is connected with Aleftah, Et HaMizbecha. But guess what? In here, when he says that he built, that word by Yiven also means Ben, which is the son. He is building the altar. It's, the altar is connected with the son himself, Yeshua. Look, let's move on in here. I want to keep you guys too long. It says, and now it says in here, after he did that, he says, Now this is very interesting because it says, There's another a lot of ets in this uh, verse because it all connects to the Mashiach. Look, that is, talk, that is the wood again. But he says in here that he arranged the wood. Where am I? Okay, by Rok. That is translated as he arranged the wood. But that word there is the Hebrew word arach, right? And it literally means, yeah, it's something like you arrange, you set in order. But that word means also to value something or to even estimate it. It's talking about the value of who will be in the wood. <laughs> <laughs> so look, it says in here, by Arok Ed, well now we know the value is the Aleph Tav, how it seems now it says in here, Vaye Avgot, Vaye Avgot Ed Yitzach. Now this is where it gets really good, because it says in here that he bound the Aleph Tav Isaac. This is what we know as the Akeda. This is the Hebrew word, Ya Akot. Et Yisak. No, go back, go back. No, go back. There you go. So it says, Et Yisak beno veisham oto al hamizbecha mima al laatsim. 
So it says that he bound him, his Aleph Taf, Isaac. This is comparing now and contrasting the Mashiach being bound. This is what traditionally in Judaism we know as the Akedah. Okay? So, John 19, 17, look what it says. And bearing his stake, he went out to the so-called place, a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they held him, two others with him, one on this side and the other on the other side, and Yeshua in the middle. So it's very, 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 very amazing because, again, it's showing in here such a prophecy of Isaac being bound and the Mashiach being bound in Mount Moriah, where the temple will be, in the same location. It's very, very interesting. Look, the scriptures reveal that Isaac was in his 30s when this took place. More of a prophecy of Messiah because according to history, he was in his 30s when he died as well. Like Yeshua, Isaac was willing to lay down, his, uh, lay down in obedience to his father. Just like Yeshua was following the orders of the father. Isaac was strong enough that he could not overpower Abraham, that's for sure. However, he willingly submitted to his father's order, just like Yeshua said. John 6, 10, 17 says, Because of this, the father loves me, because I lay down my life in order that I may receive it again. No one takes my life away from me. I give it up of my own free will. I have the right to give it up, and I have the right to take it back. This has come from my father, he says. This is amazing. Just, we see the parallel here with Isaac and the Mashiach. So Genesis 22, 12 says, and he said, do not lay. Now Abraham is ready to carry out the duty, which is prophetically showing his submission to the Heavenly Father as well. Folks, what do we glean from this is even in those hard choices, sometimes we have to be obedient to the Father. He was willing to carry out that order. That's not easy. I mean, let's just face it. In the natural he literally was taking his son out there to sacrifice him. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm showing you the prophecy and the prophetic shadows of the Messiah, but that doesn't neglect the fact that Abraham did go to the mountain with his boy, and it was ready to cut his throat. Mm -hmm. This is amazing. So look, do not lay a hand on the boy, nor touch him, for, I, for now I know that you fear Elohim, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now it's interesting, was that his only son? <laughs> but that's another midrash, folks. <laughs> Thirteenth. And Abraham, uh, and Abraham lifted his eyes, it says, and Abraham lifted his eyes, and looked and saw behind him a ram caught in a bush by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now verse 13 is where it's very important. Because I believe verse 13 is where Yeshua was talking about in John chapter 8, when he says that Abraham saw his day. And we're going to see this in the Hebrew text. In the Hebrew text it says, Vaisa Abraham et a nine. Look at this. This is amazing. Aleph Tav connected with that. What he saw. He saw Aleph Tav. But look, it says, Vaisa Abraham et a nine. Now, what is the title of this portion? The same title of the portion, we have it here in this verse. Okay? 
And we learned that Vayira is not necessarily just an appearance, right? But it means to give honor, to give reverence. So Abraham, it says Vaisa Abraham. What is Vaisa, folks? It is from the Hebrew word Sa'ah, folks. And Sa'ah literally means to be astonished at something. To be at awe, essentially. Okay? So when he says Vaisa Abraham, Abraham was literally like, <gasps> it, it caught him by surprise. Amazed. He was amazed at what he saw. So, Vaisa, what is it that he saw? It says, Vaisa Abraham. So he saw, he experienced, he gave reverence to who? To the olive top. But it gets better. Look, it says, Vayira, Vehine, says, and behold, Vayil, Achar. What is Vayil? A ram. But this is no ordinary ram. This is the connection in here. Look, it says in here, where am I? Okay. Behold, Ayil says, Ahem. Instead, it says, Ne'echaz. Ne'echaz besbach. Let's look at that. Because, you know, Abraham now is astonished. He's like, you know, all of a sudden he's ready to kill his son. He's ready to slide his throat in a kosher way, right? right? <laughs> just, just kidding. But, you know, but nonetheless, he sees this and he's like, he experienced, he gets reverence, more than experience, he gets reverence because by is more of reverence. So whatever he experienced that he saw, there was an act of reverence in there. And then behold, he says by Ne'echaz. And what is Ne'echaz? I'm going to put it in here because there was so much in here uh, that I couldn't fathom. There's so many notes that I have to write in here. But look, Ne'echaz means to cease, to fasten. So he saw this ram and he fastened it. He seized it, right? And it says, Basbecha, okay? What is Basbecha? By his horns. Now, what it, that when he says that he grabbed him by the horns, that word for Basbecha literally means the glory also in Hebrew. Kind of like something that shines. It also can mean the horns of a ram. So that's probably the more literal sense. He grabbed the horns of a ram. But also, spiritually, it was the glory that he was grabbing. So look. So, Basbecha, right? And it says, Bekarana, which is the horns. Beyilech, it says in here. So he went, Abraham, Baikah, and he grabbed, and he grabbed, he took, Baikah, et Hayit. The Aleph Taf with the ram. And what did he do with it? It says in here. Continuing in here. So he grabbed the Aleph Tav, the ram who has the label as the Aleph Tav, right? And it says, And he what? He offered as the burnt offering. Now, this is good. It says, after that, That's the ending of this. So it says, This word for Tachat is very interesting. But if you try to go and find the etymology of this word, you can't find it. So you have to really look at hat, right? And see how this relates. But this word, tahat, literally means, it is translated as, as the uh, instead of, right? But this word literally means in the place of. So he took the Aleph Tav, 
in the place of Isaac. That's the Mashiach, folks. This is really, really amazing. You see, in the Hebrew, it makes so much sense when you look at all these letters combined together to see the story. So when Abraham saw this ram, it wasn't just a ram that he saw. He saw a prophetic vision of the Mashiach being slain. This is why in John 8, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see the day of my coming. He saw it. Where did he see it? 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 Vayira vehine. Vayira. Abraham vayira. Abraham saw it, and Abraham gave reverence to it. That's where you literally see it in the text. Abraham saw the coming of the Mashiach and dying and being slain just as Isaac was or just as Isaac was supposed to be. He was given a revelation. I believe personally, folks, that up to this point, that revelation was never given to Abraham because he knew the word of Hashem. We know that. But I don't really think that it really sunk in what the word of Hashem was going to do up to this point. And that is in the Akedah. That's when it really sunk into him Wow. You know what I believe came to his mind? The first thing? Genesis chapter 12. That in you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Mm -hmm. He saw that. That's why Hebrews says that he was looking forward to that new Jerusalem. He was looking forward to that home. That unfortunately, um, even though he received it while he was there in Canaan, it was not... It was not the real promise. Abraham understood this all too well, way too well. So I want to read something in here that Rabbi Hirsch has to say about this. When he talks about the Abraham, open his eyes. He says, Abraham et says something. Look what Rabbi Hirsch has to say in here. He says, Abraham wanted to dedicate the lives of all his descendants just as he had been ready to offer the life of his son. This binding, okay, of Isaac represented total submission to God's will. Now, Abraham sought to make this dedication eternal by bringing an offering in Isaac's place. Thus, the daily temple offerings were a national continuation of the Akedah. In other words, this is just powerful because the saying in here that Abraham sought to make this dedication eternal by bringing an offering in Isaac's place. Who will be the dedication in Isaac's place? Mashiach will be eternal. It's powerful, folks. When we see how the Father reveals His grace through His Hebrew word, through His Hebrew language and His text, we see the deeper layers and understand the words of the Mashiach when he spoke in the gospel. When did, when did he see Abraham? Right here, folks. But you cannot see that in a translation. In a translation, you won't be able to see that. John 19, 5 and 6. Then Yeshua came outside wearing the crown of thorns. That was symbolic of the ram that was caught on the thicket. Look. And the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, See the man. So when the chief priests and officers saw him, they shouted, saying, Impale him, impale him. 
Pilate said to them, You take him and impale him, for I found no guilt in him. This is amazing. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only brought forth son. You see, that's what it's talking about in Hebrew, Ketek. That is in the place of. So look and see it. Look what it continues to say. Of whom it was said, and Isaac your seed shall be called. Reckoning that Elohim was able to raise even from the dead, from which he received him back as a type. This is amazing. All connecting not just about the Mashiach dying for the sins of the people, but also about the resurrection, most importantly. And Isaac came back down to the mountain with him, didn't he? So Isaac returning back with Abraham was symbolic of the resurrection of the Mashiach. He didn't stay dead, in other words. So now we end the portion with this, folks. Genesis 22, 14 says, So Abraham called the name of that place Yehovah Yireh, as it is said to this day, on the mount of Yehovah it will be seen. Now remember when this was written, that understanding now is in the mountain of Yehovah, it will be seen. And that became fulfilled, folks, when Yeshua was literally crucified. Because the offering will be seen by all. And by all, they witnessed the crucifixion of Yeshua. Amen.
It's always about their own work. And a lot of these people, they were so skilled that they even overpowered the gods. So we've kind of inherited that into our culture today where, you know, we have this, this uh, scenario that we're in, but through our, our great skill, through our great strength, through great determination, we've overcome where we were. Now, the Hebrew scriptures are a little bit different. The God of Abraham is different than the nations, and he expects us to be different as well. Now, one story right here that really kind of separates the ways of the nations with the ways of Hashem is, let's look at the story of the 300 Spartans. You know, these are people who trained their whole life. They were the best warriors on the planet. Now, through great skill, great strength, through impeccable planning, they were able to hold off an army of hundreds of thousands for a few days. They all ended up dying. But now let's look at another story that happened several centuries before the Spartans. Also 300 men. Also an army of hundreds of thousands. This is Gideon. Now, Gideon was not a warrior. He didn't spend his whole life training and learning and becoming really good at fighting and swinging the sword. And he was not a military commander. So he was not able to do impeccable military planning. And he and his men were not warriors. They were farmers. So, <clears throat> how did they win? Because none of Gideon's men died. They didn't hold off the army of hundreds of thousands for three days. They wiped them out in 24 hours. <laughs> Not one died. So what's the difference here? The Greeks, the Spartans, were relying on their own strength and their own skill and their own smarts. Gideon was relying on God. Hallelujah. That's the difference. Your own strength versus faith in Hashem. That's the difference. So the great men in the Hebrew Scriptures, the great men in God's kingdom, are the ones who say, I am weak, I am pathetic, I am nothing but dust. He is the one in charge, and if I do what he says, things are going to work out just fine. So, <clears throat> this is the context we're getting into here, is letting go on what you think is right. Letting go on what you can do with your big muscles, and doing what Hashem says. So, we're going to start out right here with the uh, uh, widow... In 2 Kings 4.1. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets uh, <clears throat> cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And know that your servant feared the Lord, that the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me. And what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside. Borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. That word for go is halak, or lehad, same as Abraham. So she's, getting the, she's going to have a promise given to her pretty soon. But just like Abraham who received the promise, he had to go. He had to go do something. And it goes on. <coughs> then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, <clears throat> they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. So we have something interesting going on here. Um, she was in a tight spot. She was in trouble. And then she received a promise that Hashem was going to take care of things. But before the promise could be taken care of, she had a job to do. 
It was her and her children's responsibility to gather the jars and pour the oil. Now, she wasn't doing this on her own strength. It wasn't her idea to go get the jars. She was following a command. And Elisha didn't do it for her because he wasn't even there. Because as you're reading, he says, go, you gather the jars. And when you get them, you go into your house and close the door. And you pour the oil. Now, not only did she perform all these labors of filling the jars, she needed to act like there was enough oil for all the jars, even before she saw that the oil would keep flowing. Because she wasn't sitting there just watching this oil shoot out of the jar. Quick, quick, we'll grab some jars and we'll catch it. No, she didn't see it coming. She had to act first, even though she couldn't see it. She had to act as if the oil was indeed a reality. It wasn't sitting there on a wagon waiting for her just to grab it. So does this sound familiar? Hebrews 111. Now faith is the persuasion concerning things which are in hope, as if they were in reality. And a revelation of those things which are not seen. So she hoped for the oil, right? But she could not see the oil, not yet. But she was acting as if they were in reality. That is how her faith works. That is how faith in general works. Because if the, car, if the oil was just sitting there on a big cart and Alicia just pulled up and said, it's yours, where's the faith? There is no faith. Because it's there, you're looking at it. Faith is believing the promise, the words that Hashem is giving you, that He will fulfill it. <clears throat> and uh, going out and getting your own jars is not acting on your own strength. Because let's go back to the Gideon story. Now, it was Hashem who, who wiped out the army, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. it, was, it was Hashem who did it. But Gideon was exhausted. If you read the story, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tired. He even went to a couple of cities and said, give us food, but they refused him. It's because they were exhausted. Even though Gideon wasn't the one responsible for winning the battle, he still had to pick up this big, heavy sword and swing it all day. That's hard work. So, same way. This woman was not acting on her own strength. What she was doing is she was following a command. She was doing what she was told. And sometimes that can be a little difficult. But that is faith. Sometimes faith is a little bit of work. So let's uh, look at another example here in 1 Kings 17, 12. This is the predecessor of Elisha. Uh, this is Elijah. He is also working with a widow here. And Hashem commanded him to go stay at her house. And she was to, to feed him. Now there's a famine going on in the land where food is really scarce. There's that much going on. And when he showed up, he asked the widow, please give me some food, give me some water. And this is what she said. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked and only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So now, let's stop right there. Let's look what's going on. There's a famine. She's only got a little bit of food, enough to feed her son and herself, and probably not very well. And this guy comes in. He's not just nobody. He's not a parking lot prophet. <laughs> he is on the most wanted list of the king. Everybody knows who Elijah is. So, <clears throat> he has credentials. So, now, he gives her a promise that if she gives this last bit to him, 
she will have more than enough until the famine's over. Now, she's just acting on a promise here. She, she, she hasn't read this story. She didn't have First Kings sitting on her shelf. She doesn't know what's going to happen here. All she has to work with is a promise from the Lord himself. That if she does this, she will receive food. So let's see what happens. And when she went and did as Elijah said, and she and, her <coughs> and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word the Lord had, that he had spoke by Elijah. So we see that this, just like the first one, she also had a job. Elijah made the promise, and she needed to walk it out. Even if she believed Elijah, she would never have received the promised flour and oil without acting on the promise. That's right. Look at Abraham. You know, he's, he has all of these blessings wrapped up in the promise that he promised Abraham. But first he had to go out and do something. He had to go to the promised land. If he stayed in Ur of the Chaldeans, he would have never received his promise. This first woman who went out and got the jars, what if she was like, yeah, yeah, right. And then she just went to her first neighbor and just got a couple of jars just so we'd shut up. Yeah, the, jar, the oil would have started coming out, but she would have been done at two jars. Would not have paid no debts, wouldn't have lived on the rest. You know, and there's another story of this one guy. He was told to uh, shoot arrows out the window or stamp something on the floor. If he had faith, he would have kept doing it and doing it until his arm got tired. But because he only did it three times, the prophet says, you know, I'm only going to smite your enemy three times now. Because <laughs> he didn't have faith to keep doing it. When the Lord gives you a promise, I mean, act like it's real. I mean, like, if he says, every time you stamp your foot, I'm going to give you, you know, 50 bucks. How many times are you going to stamp your foot? <laughs> so, for us to receive his blessings, you need to act on faith. Because remember, faith is the things that you're hoping for before you see them. But you need to act like they're already there. Okay, so here's a, this whole idea of an active faith in James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. <clears throat> so if Abraham didn't have faith, he wouldn't have acted. And if he didn't act, well, we wouldn't be reading about the story of Abraham today. Matthew 7, 21. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. It's not the person who hears these words. It's the person who hears these words and does them. That's right. Confirmation, Romans 2.13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Because remember, <coughs> hearing is the first step. <coughs> because when you receive a promise, you have to hear it first. When you get a commandment, you have to hear the commandment first. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it doesn't do you any good until you obey. That's right. Until you do. So we're going to look at some examples through scriptures so that we can really get a good foundation on this subject. Joshua is a really good one here in Joshua 6, 1 through 5. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. So what we see here is a promise. <clears throat> Hashem says it's yours. But now... What does Joshua and the nation of Israel do? Do they just sit there and wait for the city to fall down and you know, just say it's all done and they just sat there and drink some Coca-Colas? No, let's see what they had to do. You shall march around the city 
all of the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of rams, horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. The priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up. Everyone straight before him. Okay, so we see a promise, right? Right there. The city's yours. But they had to go get it. Just like with the widow. The oil was hers. She had to go get it. Abraham, the land was his. He had to go get it. Jericho was theirs. They had to go get it. So when Hashem makes you a promise, listen to him. Obey. Just don't sit there. Now, <clears throat> Jericho was promised to Israel, but they still had to work to do. They still had work to do before they received the miracle. It's faith. It's the things unseen. Similarly, faith also requires you to abstain from following the ways of the nations. We're going to find an example here. We're going to go to Daniel 3:17-25. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar had put up a statue. And said, every time you hear the music, you need to bow down and worship the statue. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do it. And eventually the word got to the king, and he became furious. And he says, you bow down and worship it, or you're going to be thrown into the fire. This is what they said to him. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. <coughs> now see here, they were going to follow the command of Hashem regardless, whether they died or not. They didn't care. The only thing they cared about was obedience to His word. And what they have here is the same exact uh, commandment that we have. Because they have the exact same Torah that we have. It says, do not worship the gods of the nations. Do not even worship Him the way the nations worship their own gods. So the commandment they have is the same commandment we have, which means we need to have the same faith they did. Right. So it goes on. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. <clears throat> okay, let's stop right here. Now, they weren't bluffing. When they said, whether the Lord saves us or not, we're not going to bow down. We're not going to break the commandments. And we know they weren't bluffing, because at any point up until this moment... They could have saved themselves. They could have taken things into their own hands and says, oh, wait, we'll, we'll bow down to your statue. And then everything would have been good and they would have gone on living life. But they had faith up until the very last minute. And this is what happened. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Some translations say the son of God, which would be the Messiah. <coughs> so at any moment, they could have saved their own lives. They could have used their own smarts and 
got out of this deal. But they would have been breaking the commandments. They would have been breaking faith with Hashem. So, what we see here is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego needed to be faithful to the very end. And they were thrown into the fire before they received the miracle. And it doesn't take much faith to do it after you're, after being saved. So, <clears throat> they didn't read the story beforehand and say, uh, I'm, I'm going to be fine. They didn't see the Messiah sitting in the fire and say, come on in, the fire's fine. <laughs> they thought they were going to die. Bless you. But they held to it until the very end. Now, how does this apply to us, since not too many of us are being thrown into furnaces these days? So, the way this applies to us, let's say a house payment, for example. Let's say... The bills are due, you're getting, you know, red, red, uh, red, red, red tags in the mail and say, your house is going to be repoed on Monday unless you get the money here. So, you have an option. Somebody gives you a good deal. If you go to work on Saturday, you'll get enough money to pay off your house and you'll keep your house. So, this is the perfect opportunity to have faith. Do you break the commandments or do you let God take care of it? Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... God is able to make your house payment for you if you keep his commandments. But if not, then you will do it anyway. You will keep his commandments regardless. Now, this can be applied in a lot of things. Because at any moment, he could have said, Oh, I'm just going to, you know, the greatest commandments to save a life. So I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go make the king happy. and go worship his gods. Do whatever. You could make that argument, but it's wrong. The right argument is to say, God can save me, but even if he doesn't, I am not going to commit idolatry. I am going to follow him until the very end. So far we have seen that faith can involve all sorts of hard work, and that faith can also be as simple as refusing to submit to man's ways. So more accurately, what we're seeing here is that faith requires you to, to submit to the ultimate authority of Hashem. Oh, yeah. Because your faith can be expressed in many ways. It can be gathering oil. You know, it can be going out there and swinging a sword like Gideon did. But it can also be not doing what the nations are doing. So uh, submitting to authority is really the overall kind of thing that's binding this all together. So we got the Roman centurion here. In Matthew 8, 8, he had a sick servant, and he went to Yeshua and says, please heal my servant. And Yeshua said, okay, let's go to your house, because that's what everybody else wanted. And this is what he said to Yeshua. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Yeshua heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Okay, now this is a very interesting story. We don't see him sweating and breaking his back doing any kind of labor, do we? We don't see anybody threatening him being thrown into a furnace. His life's not at risk here. But why is Yeshua commending him with such faith? It's because he understands the authority that Hashem has. No matter what Hashem asked him to do, he would do it didn't matter what it was. He, he wouldn't hesitate to walk into the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he understands the authority involved here. Anything at all he would have done if the word of God said, said to do it. Now, obviously, he understands the authority of Yeshua. So, obviously, he's keeping the commandments whether the Roman army knows about it or not. So, when we read about the determination and the complete trust of the men and women in the scriptures, sometimes we forget that they are real people, just like us. 
and they experienced the same emotions and thoughts that we do. They were not robots. So, let's look at a little example of it. 2 Kings 4, 20 through 27, this is also in the half towards, right after the widow with the oil. Now this woman, she is referred to as the Shunammite woman. Every time Elisha the prophet would come into the town, she would treat him very well. She'd give him a place to sleep, give him food, and to reward her for her kindness, Hashem gave her a child. And after a time, this is what happened. And when he had lifted him up and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, All is well. Okay, so sounds like oh, no big deal. All right, let's keep reading. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me, unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. Okay, so what we're reading at this point, it seems like she's not concerned at all. Like maybe, you know, somebody's dog, you know, dug up your plant or something in your garden. I mean, and she's just going to, you know, speak her grievances. That's what it sounds like on the surface because she's had lots of opportunities to just spill her heart out if she was in distress, right? Well, let's keep reading. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said... Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Wow. Not only is she in distress, she's in bitter distress. This is probably the most horrible, heart-wrenching moment of her life. But she has faith. She physically, emotionally, she's probably not thinking straight. The world is just falling apart around her. But she has so much faith in the authority of Hashem that she's not complaining. Notice... Everywhere in here, it says, urge the animal on, do not slacken your pace. It's because she knows when she gets to him that he has the authority to make things right. So she wasn't hesitating. She wasn't slacking. And the reason she said all is well, she's saying everything is going to be well. Everything's not well at this moment. The child is, yeah, so everything's going to be well. It's because she is hoping in something she hasn't seen yet. She's hoping that her son is going to be raised up. But she's acting as if it is indeed a reality, which is why she's saying all is well. That is the kind of faith that we need. So now knowing that these people that we're seeing with their faith, the determination to walk out until the very end, and no matter what situation it is, have complete faith, it is not because they have no emotions. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were probably shaking in their boots. I mean, they were probably sweating so hard, they probably, I mean, probably, I can't even describe, because I wouldn't even know how much fear they were probably experiencing as they were looking at that furnace. But no matter what their physical response was, no matter what their mental ideas of how bad it's going to hurt were, they had more faith in God than they did in their own emotions. <clears throat> so, that's the same way we need to be. No matter how much fear we feel, no matter how much pain we feel, we need to understand that God is greater than every bit of it. 
So the trials and tests are not easy. Otherwise, they wouldn't be trials or tests. So even our faithful forefathers were humans, just like us. <clears throat> Everything we go through, they went through. So let's take a look at uh, Abraham here in Genesis 22.5. one of our Torah connections. There's lots of them, but we'll just go with this one. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now we all know the story. He was commanded to take his son up and offer him up. So Abraham has faith that the boy's coming back. That's why he says he's coming back. Mm -hmm. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. So now as we're reading this, it looks like Abraham has complete confidence. He's doing fine. You know, it's all... But one thing we need to realize, Abraham didn't say to his son, I've rehearsed this like 30 times last week. <laughs> this and this and this and this is going to happen. Abraham did not know what was going to happen. But he did know that whatever happened, because he was walking blamelessly before Hashem, because he had faith in Hashem, whatever happened was going to work out for good. And we know he didn't know it was going to happen. He didn't know that, you know, as soon as he picked up his eyes, like, now I'm raising the knife. Where's the lamb? No. He did not know it was going to happen. We read this here in Hebrews 11, 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in fact, <coughs> was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham didn't know that, there were, that he was going to stop him right at the last second. Abraham was going to carry it out because he knew that, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, at the worst, Hashem was going to raise them up at the, at the last day or at any point he so chose. Because Hashem has authority. Not only is he all-powerful, he has all authority. All he has to do is speak a word, and whatever he says will happen. He doesn't even need to force nothing. So, like when they were thrown into the furnace, you know, that's why they said, even if he doesn't save us from the furnace, it's no big deal because he's going to raise us up on the last day. And even here with uh, Isaac, you know, he was going to carry it through because he had that much faith that Hashem was going to make all things work out for good. Because he had faith, he was willing to act out the command even before he saw the blessing because he knew he was going to be good. Now, <clears throat> It, faith takes little steps because when you first come into this walk just even keeping the Sabbath to begin with is a, is a step of faith and then as you grow in your faith you know you get to the point where I, I don't care if they read my house I don't care if they do this, I don't care if I lose my job I'm going to keep the Sabbath but it takes time to get there and we see that people's faith do grow here we're going to go to Mark 9 21 and this is going to be a man his child was demon possessed and he took him to Yeshua to be healed and Yeshua asked his father, how long, has he been, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often <clears throat> cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And you shed stone. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. So, this man 
he had enough faith to even show up. So he had something to start with. Mm -hmm. But he, was, he wasn't really sure if anything was going to happen. And Yeshua says, if you want this to happen, you have to believe. So the man said, help my unbelief, which your belief can be helped. In Luke 17, 1, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now, these are very faithful men, but their faith needed to go up even higher. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is in the Spirit. So we see one degree of glory to another, one degree of faith from another. When you first came into the walk, your faith might have been at this degree. But as you go on and you start to see that Hashem is working in your life, that His promises are being fulfilled, your, your, your degree of faith may have been here, but now it's here. And then again, it'll go here. It'll keep rising up. Your faith, faith will be increased. But the question is, how is faith increased? Second Thessalonians 1 and 3, uh, verses 1, 3 through 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So we see right here that these people's faith is increasing. And Apostle Paul right here is acknowledging that your faith is growing. But he's also acknowledging that they're having faith in persecutions and afflictions. What's the connection here? We'll go to Romans 5.2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith. So right here the subject is faith. Into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, which is faith. <coughs> so it is through our afflictions, through our persecutions, through our sufferings, that we become more faithful. Let's look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, they had enough faith to go through it, right? But now, since they were raised from the persecution, from the furnace, imagine how much faith they had at that point. Somebody says, here, eat this ham sandwich. Like, no. <laughs> Their faith is going to be unstoppable at that Solid. point. <laughs> so, this makes sense. The more times you hold fast to the faith and things work out, you're going to look back and go, wow, you. it really did work out. So next time you'll be like, you know what, it worked out the last 50 times. Chances are it's going to happen again. That's your faith increasing through the persecutions. So James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Also in the Testament concept, Psalms 119.31. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The affliction is good. You know, like when you go to boot camp, you know, and the guy's sitting there yelling at you and making you do push-ups and you don't get enough sleep. He's not doing it because he hates you. He's doing it to make you strong so that when the real work, the real job comes, you're ready for it. And that's what all this testing here is for. It's because, you know, Paul has made the example that, you know, we are in a battlefield here. So we can use that example quite literally. And uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17 for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us, kind of like a boot camp. It's preparing us for our real duties as an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, yeah. This takes us back to uh, Hebrews 11, verse 1. You know, we have to have faith on the things we don't see. We have to have faith that he's going to bring us the oil before we see it. We have to have faith in his promise before we see it come to pass. Because a lot of the forefathers, when it's talking about faith, you know, they didn't receive the ultimate promise, you know, the great day of the Lord when he comes and sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. But they were behaving as if he was already here. You know? That way when the great day comes and they're all resurrected, well, there you go. So in conclusion of all this, sometimes when Hashem gives us a promise, we are given a test of faith. And when I say sometimes, I mean pretty much expected. <laughs> sometimes faith can be hard, hard work. Like gathering jars, watering towels, not worshiping statues. Also, waiting. Mm-hmm. Out of all that waiting, mm-hmm. I would think he's got to be the absolute most difficult part. Oh, yeah. We could sit here for an hour and just give you examples of people waiting in the scriptures. <laughs> Abraham had to wait <laughs> a long time. I mean, how many of us would have given up after just a couple of weeks? Mm-hmm. You know, King David, you know, it's like, you're going to be king. Trust me. Yeah. You know, he looks back. Ten, ten years later, he's looking back, and I'm living in a cave. My father and I was trying to kill me. You know? yeah. And then another ten years even after that, that's when he's crowned king. It's patience. He's the Amen. God of patience. He wants us to be patient. The hardest te- part of keeping faith is the waiting. Because remember, when you've committed to complete authority, things aren't going to happen when you want. Amen. Which is a good thing. Because we can't see five seconds ahead of us. I mean, anything could happen at any moment. We have no idea when. So we might think, now's a good time for me to become king, and then everything falls apart. <laughs> you, you, gotta, you gotta wait for his time, yes. because that's when the promise is going to happen the way it should. So in other words, believe all you want, you won't receive the promise until you act on it. Bless you, and according to Hebrew thought, waiting on the Lord is an action. When you're waiting on him, you keep his ways. Yes. So acting on faith is submitting to his authority and his timing. So also, the Lord is in the business of increasing our faith because we just don't get there magically. He gives us opportunities to become faithful. That way, the next time we're like, we're starting to get into this group, like, you know what? He's got my back. So, how does He increase our faith? Through the trials and testing. And it is through these difficult trials and tests that we become strong and faithful servants. And eventually, this faith allows us to rely on the things. To, or to not rely on the things that are seen. We don't look at the world around us. We don't look to the left and to the right. We look to the promise that is far ahead of us. Through faith, we rely on the things that are still unseen, as we've been talking about this whole time. And that is when we will have the faith of the forefathers. That is when Hashem will look at us as the offspring of Abraham, because we will do what Abraham did. And that is the half We've heard quite a deal about faith and the faith of Abraham. And our portion today starts off, It came to be in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for all the world to be registered. <coughs> this took place as a first registration while Quirinius was govern, governing Syria. And all were going to be registered, each one to his own city. And Joseph also went up to, from Galil, out of the city of Nazareth, <coughs> to Yehuda, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, who was engaged to him, being pregnant. 
Notice here that it says Bethlehem. In Micah 5.2, we read, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are little among the clans of Yehudah, out of you shall come forth to me the one to become ruler in Israel. And his coming, comings forth, or his appearances, are of old and everlasting. So Micah foresaw the coming of the Messiah. In the book of Matthew, it is recorded that uh, King Herod had the rabbis brought, had the Pharisees brought to him to look up the scrolls, to find, because he'd heard that there was a that there was a prophet, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And so he had that, had them bring that to him. So he knew that Bethlehem was the place. So at the time of the, the Magi, the four wise, the three wise men. <clears throat> In Luke 2, 6, it says, And it came to be that while they were there, the days were filled for her to give birth. And this goes back to Genesis. Chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. reads, And the messenger of Hashem called to Abraham a second time from the heavens, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Hashem, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, but I shall certainly bless you. And I shall certainly increase your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And let your seed possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham obeyed and the coming Messiah was to come through his lineage. And this Messiah was born in this particular verse as it is recorded in verse, uh, verse 6 of chapter 2. So we see the coming of the Messiah. We see the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecy. And that blessing began at the birth of Yeshua. Luke chapter 2 continues in verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him up and laid him down in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in a lodging place. In the same country there were shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And look, a messenger of Hashem stood before them, and the esteem of Hashem shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the messenger said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people, because there was born to you today in the city of David a Savior, who is Messiah, the Master. The word was brought to the lowly who were out in the field, instead of to those who were exalted in the city. Those who had raised themselves did not receive the word of the Mashiach being born, but those who were humble in their lives and in their faith. The messenger of Hashem came to give the word. And as we read today, do not be afraid. Constantly throughout the Bible, do not be afraid. Fear not. John chapter 1 verse, 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. We saw His glory, His esteem, as of an only brought forth of a Father, complete in favor and truth. Another, looking back on, on Abraham himself and Isaac as being a, 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 a foreshadow of the Mashiach, Abraham gave up, was willing to give up his only son, his one and only through whom the promise was given, the inheritance would be received. The same with Mashiach. The promise was given, and the inheritance can only be received through him. The word 
is the prophesied Messiah. And it is the word that was prophesied, spoken in the word of our Torah portion today. Genesis 22, 18 says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And that is Mashiach. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 say, But when the completion of the time came, Elohim set forth, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under Torah, to redeem those who were under Torah in order to receive the adoption as sons. It's interesting that he speaks of law. Mashiach did come through those who were under the law, born under Torah, to be obedient to Torah. I'll speak more about that in just a moment. Luke chapter 2 continues in verse 12, and this is the sign to you. You shall find a baby wrapped lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was with the messenger a crowd of the heavenly host praising Elohim and saying, Glory to Elohim in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Not those with whom he is displeased. There can be no peace if he's not, pe if he's not pleased with you. The peace that passes all understanding only comes with his being pleased with us. And he will be pleased with us when we are believing in him, and that is our righteousness, and walking in his ways to give him the glory that he is due. And it came to be when the messengers had gone away from them into the heaven that the shepherds said to each other, Indeed, let us go to Bethlehem and let's see this matter that has taken place, which the Master has made known to us. So Mashiach, the Master, is being born, but the Master is giving the message. They had an understanding that God the Master is sending his Master, the Son, who's being born this day in the city of Bethlehem. And they came in haste and found Miriam and Yosef and the baby lying in the feeding trough. And having seen, they made known the matter which was spoken to them concerning the child. They gave revelation of the revelation that was given to them by the messenger of Hashem. Made it to Miriam. And what did, what, how, what did she do? And Miriam kept all these matters, considering them in her heart. She held on to a lie. She did not reveal who he was for a long time. Only in the city of Canaan did she first, it is recorded that she first asked him to perform miracles. And he said, it's not my time, why are you asking me this? And yet he did it anyway, to honor his mother, and to give glory to God, and to bring esteem to the household in which the marriage was taking place. And the shepherds returned boasting and praising Elohim, for they all had heard and seen it as it was spoken to them. And when eight days were completed for him to be circumcised, just as was de declared in our Torah portion today, Isaac was, was circumcised on the eighth day. His name was called Yeshua, the name given by the messenger before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her cleansing, according to the Torah of Moshe, were completed, they brought him to Yerushalayim to present him to Hashem. She followed the commandments of Nidah and childbirth in order to be clean before she brought him into the sanctuary for the blessing. 
As it has been written in the Torah of Hashem, every male who opens the womb shall be called set apart to Hashem. And that is recorded in Exodus 13, 2, 13, 12, and 13, 15. And to give an offering according to what is said in the Torah of Hashem, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And see, there was a man in Yerushalayim whose name was Shimon. And this man was righteous and dedicated, looking for the comforting of Israel. And the set-apart spirit was upon him. And we need to remember that the comfort of Hashem, or rather the comfort of Israel, was the Messiah. He was to bring peace, and that brings comfort. Right? We can reside in comfort knowing that we're not living day-to-day in fear of the nations around us persecuting us. He was looking forward to that day. It had been revealed to him by the set-apart spirit that he would not see death before he sees the Messiah of Hashem. And he came into in the spirit into the set-apart place, and as the parents brought in the child Yeshua to do for him according to the usual practice of the Torah, he took him up in his arms and blessed Elohim. Bless you, Abba, for your Messiah has been brought. He's been born, and his name is Yeshua. And he said, Now let your servant go in peace, O Master, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your deliverance, your Yeshua, which you have prepared for the, before the face of all the peoples, a light for the unveiling of the nations and the esteem of your people, Israel. Even he had an understanding at this moment, Shimon did, that Yeshua was not just there for the Jews. He was there for the nations, the Goyim. That word deliverance that we that I just translated to Yeshua also means salvation. In the Greek, it is the word soterios. It is a saving, a bringing to salvation. Or it is he who embodies this salvation or through whom God is about to achieve it, the hope or future salvation. It is from the root word soteria, which means to rescue or to bring safety, physically or morally. It is to deliver it is health, it is salvation, it is saving. Yeshua is our deliverance, our salvation. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I, Hashem, have called you in righteousness, and I strengthen your hand and guard you and give you for a covenant to a people, for a light to the nations. That word nations is the goyim. The light was already in Yehuda, in Israel. They knew the light, even though they didn't always walk in the light. The Goyim did not know the light. He needed to be that light. Isaiah 49, 6 says, And he says, Shall it be a, a small matter for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved ones of Israel? And I shall give you as a light to the nations to be my deliverance to the ends of the earth. So Messiah is born as promised in order to bless all nations. John chapter 10, verse 16 says, And other sheep have I which are not of this fold. I have to bring them as well. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one flock, one shepherd. Now we know that the nation of Israel had been scattered. The northern tribes had been scattered entirely. There was no northern kingdom any longer. It was all one Yehuda, one Judaism. He will be bringing it back into one, and it will be one Israel. But it will also include the Gentiles. John 11, 51 through 52, 
Caiaphas is high priest at this time. And it's recorded that he didn't say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yeshua was about to die for the nation. We've all read this. We understand that he, he, he said he, Yeshua needs to die. We need, we need to let one die. And it's because of the revelation that had been given to him in a dream. And not for the nation only, but to gather together into one the children of Elohim who were scattered abroad. We've been children of God all of our lives. Even though we may not have known Him, even though we've followed the ways and the practices of this world, because of the fact that we were born into this world that was fallen and in which sin resides, we have to come back to Him. And so it's recorded that Yeshua is going to do this. And he's doing it now. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and through 15 says, For this reason, even as through one man sin did enter into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the Torah, sin was in the world, but sin is not reckoned when there is no Torah. It is recorded that sin is the transgression of the law. One cannot understand a, their transgression without knowing what it is they transgressed against. So for some of us, for whom this walk is still rather new, even though we knew him, we were still in a way sinning because we didn't know, even though we didn't know what sin was because we weren't following his law. But blessed be his name that each and every one of us are here now following his Torah following the commandments that he has set forth so that we can do our very best not to sin against him. Good example of the Torah needing to be here in order for us to recognize the sin. For it says that sin didn't exist until the Torah. Well, it wasn't defined because without Torah, there was no definition of what sin was. When I started my job, I was given the employee handbook. It says what to do and what not to do. If I'm not provided with that handbook, then I might not know that chewing gum, as an example, might be against the rules. And then getting in trouble for that, would, that would be unrighteous discipline. I didn't know there was no gum allowed. You didn't give me a handbook that said it wasn't allowed, such as the Torah. He gives us the standard by which we are to walk and to worship. Romans 5 continues, But death reigned from Adam until Moshe, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him, Mashiach, who was to come. But the favorable gift is not like the trespass, for if by one man's trespass many died, much more the favor of God and the gift in favor of the one man, Yeshua Messiah, overflowed to many. Luke 2 continues, And Joseph and his mother, were, and, and his mother, Yeshua's mother, were marveling as well, at what was said about him. And Shimon blessed them and said to Miriam, his mother, See, this one is set for a fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign spoken against. And a word shall pierce through your own, excuse me, and a sword shall, shall pierce through your own being also, so as to reveal the thoughts of many hearts. 
It's recorded numerous times where someone in the presence of Yeshua spoke within himself. And Yeshua knew those words. The heart was revealed. And then there was Hannah, a prophetess, a daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with a husband seven years from her maidenhood. So she was from, from a maiden to being married. In her, in her marriage, she was married seven years. And then her husband died. And she was a widow of about 84 years, who did not leave the set-apart place, but served Elohim with fasting and prayers day and night. Seven and eighty-four is ninety-one. Yeah, she was kind of old. She was childless, maybe barren. And yet, what was she doing? She was in the temple, praising and worshiping, fasting. And she, coming in at that moment, gave thanks to Hashem and spoke of Him to all who were waiting for redemption in Yerushalayim. And him is the Mashiach. She also knew that the child that was brought in at that moment was the Messiah. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, chapter 11, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, Therefore remember that you, once nations, once Gentiles in the flesh, we know this one, don't we? Who are called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, called Gentiles by the Jews, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. This is something we read every Shabbat. Something we need to remember because we've been grafted, we've been brought in, and now we get to share in the goodness, the covenants, the promises. That scripture continues. It says, for he is our peace, who has made both one. The Jews and the Gentiles have become one. And having broken down the partition of the barrier, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the Torah of the commands and dogma, the written word of man that overrides or tells us how to strict, so overly strictly adhere to the word of God, that it does away with the word of God, so as to create in himself one renewed man from the two, thus making peace, and to completely restore to favor both of them unto Elohim in one body through the stake, having destroyed the enmity by it. Imagine the Christians and the Jews coming together, the Christians coming to Torah, and the Jews coming to Messiah. They both bring what they have and what they know and what they love so that it can be one much better. A one nation. And having come, he brought as good news peace to you who were far off. So very far off were the Gentiles. Were you and I in our sin when we were stuck in that sin? If that applies to you. It certainly applies to me and where I was in my life before this walk. Blessed be his name. That he, as far off as I was, brought me very near. Because through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The 
the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKlish, the Spirit of Yeshua, God is Spirit. And through that Spirit, we have access to our Heavenly Father. Only through belief in Messiah Yeshua. Only through belief in God the Father is the belief that gets us there first. And that belief will cause us to want to walk in His ways. It's your New Testament.